The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Hello and welcome to another live edition of What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley. With me tonight is Father William Jenkins. He is a traditional Catholic priest of the Society of St. Pius V. He serves as the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church right here in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. How are you tonight? Very fine, Tom. Thank you. And you? Just the same, Father. Great to see you. Yes, great to be back. Absolutely. Any uh, prayer requests before we begin tonight, Oh, Father? of course. Yeah. <laughs> Many of them. Um, as I mentioned, the Immaculate Heart of Mary prayer list contains uh, probably literally hundreds of thousands of people I know. I just uh, bring to your attention the need of a young child for prayers today. Uh, I'm sure there are many uh, children in need of prayers that we know, but one in particular, a uh, young fellow named Blaze, uh, would certainly benefit from the prayers of the people. But uh, I, if you just uh, keep in your prayers all of those who have asked your priest to pray for them, then uh, that would encompass uh, quite a good group of people. And um, when they ask us to pray for them, they're asking us to ask you. And so I ask you to pray for them too. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Father. Uh, we wanted to uh, discuss on tonight's program, uh, spend some time on, on something uh, rather disturbing um, that's been going on. Uh, this just was just uh, published in the, the news, I uh, believe, last night. Um, it mm. came out about uh, this after-school so-called Satan Club, um, which held its uh, an initial meeting at the Wilmington School District, um, I believe maybe 35, 40 minutes um, northeast of us here in, in the Cincinnati area. And I think this is the uh, the third after school Satan Club that's that's been established here in the in the state of Ohio, um, but there's um, it's caused some controversy, f Father. Um, this this after school Satan Club and um, there's it's actually being being held at a an elementary school, in uh, in the Wilmington area, and um, there of course have been some uh, residents uh, in, in the district who have been kind of upset and uh, <laughs> disturbed. By this uh, Satan Club taking place there, especially at an elementary school. Um, but uh, we'd like to get a, a Catholic perspective on this, Father, because um, in reading through some of the the news uh, commentary on this, the uh, there's an after-school Satan Club national director, one June Everett. Uh, she says that this group uh, we we shouldn't be very concerned about it because. Uh, this group, uh, she says, this is a quote, we don't believe in a supernatural Satan. We look to Satan as a symbol for standing up to tyrannical authority. To us, Satan is a symbol. It's like Santa Claus or the Tooth Fairy. We don't actually believe in an actual literal Satan. And uh, quote from the uh, after-school Satan Club National Director. Father, what, what should we think of... Um, of, of these groups? We're told that we shouldn't be concerned about them, that they simply focus and emphasize critical thinking, um, understanding the world around around us. Um, as Catholics, though, should we, should we be concerned about these? What should our response be to these after-school Satan clubs? Well, this June Everett and her uh, 
adherents, evidently, or those who follow her lead. And these after-school Satan clubs uh, claim that they are scientific, right? And they want to uh, cultivate that sense of being scientific and rational, the students, and, uh, and, uh, and they want to encourage critical thinking in the minds of the children, right? And they start out right from the beginning showing you what kind of critical thinking goes into their minds or comes out of their minds. When they say, we named this the after-school Satan Club, after Satan, although we don't believe in Satan, but he's a symbol of rebellion against tyrannical authority. But he really doesn't exist, but we're going to name our club after him anyway. Why would we choose Satan? Why would we choose that as our symbol, our mascot, as it were, if she wants to call it that? But it's pretty obvious that the, the, the point of choosing Satan is because he is the uh, antithesis of what Christians believe, you know, uh, the Christ, the Son of God, that he is the great nemesis of Christianity, the great nemesis of Christ, um, this was this name was clearly chosen as a provocation. There's no doubt about it. I mean, it's clearly chosen as a provocation to basically uh, spit in the eye of Christians, right? Um, and so that's the critical thinking they start with, right there, right off the bat, right? So we see where these people are coming from. Uh, they're coming from an anti-Christian perspective. There's absolutely no other possible justification for them having chosen to name their clubs after a figure that they they doesn't even exist, but he's a, um, a symbol of rebellion against authority, and th that's divine authority against God. That's what they mean by tyrannical authority, any religious authority uh, coming from a, a, a God, supernatural God. Uh, and there is no other kind, <laughs> real God, of course. Um, Satan wants to make himself to be a God. Uh, we read that you know, our Lord said, I saw Satan falling as lightning from heaven, right? In his rebellion, because he wanted to be like God. It's, it's interesting, the, the correlation here between the after-school Satan clubs, which is the product of what organization is this they call themselves? The Satanic Temple. The Satanic Temple. <laughs> the temple itself is an indication of worship, isn't it? I mean, that's the point. Temple, right? And... Um, so that's the critical thinking that these people are involved in. That's how scientific they are, that they call themselves a satanic temple and then start after certain school Satan clubs for children. That's very scientific. That's truly rational. Uh, at the same time, telling you they don't even believe in this, this figure. But Satan is the uh, symbol of rebellion against a belief in God, any, um, any submission to divine authority. And um, the, uh, the fact that they chose this figure who was this rebel um, to whom Saul Alinsky dedicated his book, Rules for Radicals, right? Uh, they dedicated their uh, mission here, basically, among the children um, to obviously turn them against Christ. They're supposed to be an alternative to Christian meetings, right? For children. Yeah, they, they, are, they, they are the alternative in their minds for a Christian yeah, they, meeting for children. They actually explicitly said that the, um, the, the founder and I guess the, the spokesperson for this satanic temple, this uh, Lucian Greaves, mm -hmm. I guess he, he goes by, which actually isn't even his real name, 
he said that um, he said that we're only doing this, having these after school singing clubs, because good news clubs have created a need for this. If good news okay. clubs would operate in churches rather than public schools, that need would disappear. But our point is that if you let one religion in the public schools, you have to let others in as well. Otherwise, it's an establishment of religion. So there you are. I mean, there it is again. The honesty of these people is <clears throat> is nil. <laughs> he says they established these precisely to be a counterpoint and an opposition to Christian clubs. Yes. And that if it weren't for these Christian clubs, that this this effort to develop critical thinking and scientific um, you know approach wouldn't be necessary. Yeah. Uh, so it's supposed to be freestanding. We're, we're reassured. They're freestanding for the purposes of encouraging critical thinking and uh, <clears throat> rebelling against tyrannical authority. And we're supposed to encourage a scientific point of view and, and rationalist, rationalist point of view. None of which would be necessary if it weren't for these <clears throat> Christian clubs that we have to establish to offset. <clears throat> okay? So their very purpose of existence, they say, is, is nothing. It would be pointless and useless and ne necessary to encourage scientific thinking if it weren't for the fact that they're these Christian clubs. And that's why we exist, to be sure that we, uh, we oppose them, right? So, you know, you understand what I'm saying? Yes. Uh, I mean, it's, it's absolute nonsense. And it's nonsense from beginning to end because people have protested these clubs. Uh, when I say nonsense, I don't mean to trivialize it. It, it is actually satanic nonsense, but it's nonsense worthy of Satan, really, whom we do believe in, right? <clears throat> As this, this fallen creature of God who decided, decided he would be his own God. In fact, uh, in that sense, there's a very strong resemblance and connection in, in uh, the thinking with these, uh, the Church of Satan established by Anton LaVey. It's interesting, these people, <clears throat> they change their names. Um, I mean, Anton LaVey was, was, uh, started life as Howard Stanton Levy, okay? But he had to give his name some flair because, as they say, he was a consummate showman. And, yeah, he lived his life as a consummate showman until he died at the age of 67 um, in, I think it was 1997 or so. Um, so he's been gone a while. I'm afraid he's uh, got some company right now. That he, uh, I don't know that he's enjoying the company right now. Um, but in any case, um, and the same with this uh, Lucian Greaves guy. Um, I mean, his name was Mesner, right? What was his yeah, first name? Douglas, Mesner. I believe. Douglas. Douglas, Douglas Mesner. So they have to come up with some kind of a stage name or a show name, right? Yeah. Uh, in the first place. And uh, a lot of it is showmanship. There's no doubt about it. Uh, but, I mean, so is Satan. I mean, Satan is like the consummate showman, isn't he, right? It, it fits perfectly with the persona of Satan to have these Satanists. They're, they're, they're just show people. Um, you put on some kind of a, an act and put on some kind of a mask. Well, that's what persona is. A person, person actually comes from personare, which means to speak through a mask in a play. And uh, so they adopt this persona uh, of showmanship, and that's what draws people in, right? Uh, they, 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 they ask Satan, really, to give them a magnetic personality. And probably the, the greatest example of that in history is Adolf Hitler. 
right, into the occult, and he developed, he practiced, with the, the, even the look in his eyes, he practiced mesmerizing people. And um, he was a consummate showman, really. So it is with all of such people who want to manipulate people's minds in the name of science, in the name of science, I mean, again, I mean, you, you, you take it back in history and you see how the, the, in the name of science they've done horrible, horrible things to people. And, uh, but of course, because it's science, it's okay. Because that's rational, right? That's critical thinking science. We just saw this in the whole COVID thing, what science really means to these people. And it means manipulation because you invoke science and this is like, this is like their deity, right? Yeah. This is the deity of hell. This is the deity of, 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 uh, of Satan. And that is human beings using their knowledge, their wisdom, their prudence, their rationalism to guide things to the exclusion of God. And they create hell on earth. That's where this is going too. That's what they're going to create for these children. They want to create a fun time for them. So they open their minds and their hearts to accepting <clears throat> Satanism. And this is, this is the recruiting ground for the future Satanists who are then going to adopt the Satanic principles. If you want to know what Satanism uh, really is and really leads to and where this is all going, despite the, uh, the pacifying rhetoric of the school district people <laughs> who are allowing this, and the uh, the purveyors of this after-school satanic club. You want to see where it's leading. I, I, I can hardly recommend that someone goes to the uh, official site of the Church of Satan because it is so foul. But, I mean, it's it's where they're going. In fact, uh, there you'll, you'll read um, that the official uh, website of Satan... Uh, and by the way, by the way, this Anton Lavey was a real foul character uh, from beginning from beginning to end. This poor deluded individual. You talk, we could talk about him, but the whole thing, his whole fate, his whole life was based on a lie. He couldn't even tell the truth about shaving his head. <clears throat> he um, he shaved his head in 1966. He said because he wanted to adopt the persona of the ancient executioners. And he wanted to now, you know, convey that. He shaved his head because he lost a bet. He came up with this executioner idea later on. I mean, the whole thing was a big fabrication from beginning to end. But he came out with nine satanic statements. Uh, Howard uh, Stanton Levy, now known as Anton Zandor LaVey, who wrote the Satanic Bible, and these are, this appeared in the Satanic Bible, published 1969. He says, Satan represents indulgence instead of abstinence. Satan represents vital existence instead of spiritual pipe dreams. Satan represents undefiled wisdom instead of hypocritical self-deceit. Showmanship? <laughs> Hello? <laughs> Satan represents kindness to those who deserve it instead of love wasted on ingrates. Satan represents vengeance instead of turning the other cheek. Satan represents responsibility to the responsible instead of concern for psychic vampires. That's, that's certainly uh, rational. Satan represents man as just another animal, sometimes better, more often worse than those that walk on all fours, I guess, and intellectual development has become 
the most vicious animal of all. So there you have anti-intellectualism, anti-rationalism, right? Now, you know, they'll object and say, well, this is the satanic church. This has nothing to do with this. This is not the temple, you know, satanic, satanic temple, temple or anything like that. This is not the after-school Satan uh, clubs or anything like that. But, but hey, this doesn't, this doesn't sound uh, impressive, doesn't impress anybody who actually has taken the time to look into this and talk to people who were in, in it and they know what's going on with these people. They're not impressed by their excuses. And here this man says that, that actually man is more often worse than the four, four-footed animals. Um, that um, he actually uh, uses intellectual development to become the most vicious animal of all. And I would say that what he says here actually does apply to this after-school satanic club, Satan club, they say they're developing critical thinking, rational thinking, and so on. He says <clears throat> right here, Anton LaVey, that he uses his intellect to become the most vicious animal of all. And I'd say, yes, that's true yeah. in this case. I would go with that. If you're using your fallen intellect to develop your own divinity, and he says that, we're all our own gods now. Okay. <clears throat> Welcome to Satanism, right? Satan represents all of the so-called sins as they all lead to physical, mental, or emotional gratification. Satan has been the best friend the church has ever had, as he has kept it in business all these years. So this is, this is how he ends his nine satanic statements, by actually expressing his admiration for the great friendship of Satan and keeping them in business. <clears throat> it's a show. It's a business, right? Satan kept them in business. This is his great contribution uh, of friendship to uh, Anton Zandor LaVey and his First Church of Satan <coughs> business. And I'm afraid uh, this is a very, very foul business indeed. Mm -hmm. But uh, how do you re regard this? I mean, you're, you're a father, you have children, and uh, they're trying to spread this to all the schools where they can legally uh, you, you know, by the way, how they get their legal foot in the door to do this, right? Uh, could you explain that? But you, you, were, were, well, they, you expressed they, to me. Yeah, they, they said that it uh, was based on a uh, Supreme Court decision. Um, see if I can find it here. They said that there was a, uh, back in 2001, I think, a uh, Good News Club versus Milford Central School held that when a government operates a quote-unquote limited public forum, it may not discriminate against speech that takes place within that forum on the basis of the viewpoint it expresses. Um, so they used this, um, this Supreme Court case to, to say that, uh, you know, and, well, actually, the, in, this, in this case that we're referencing, the Wellington School District, they explicitly reference this, and they say, you know, there's nothing we can do about this. They, uh, they filled out the proper permit. Uh, you know, they're taxpayers, whatever. We had to approve this. We legally cannot... Um, not not allow this to, to happen on our property. Mm -hmm. So this is this is what they're they're using. But yeah, they, they say they can't approve any religious club or right. You know they can't approve or disapprove. Mm -hmm. They just have to let them use the space. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they say we don't necessarily approve or disapprove, but yeah, we have to let them use, use the space. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, so that that's what they've been doing. But they yeah they explicitly say that they only they only do this at. Um, at, at schools where, where these good news clubs are, are happening. These Let me ask you happening. this then, based on what you just said, mm -hmm. would that indicate that, uh, you know, 
conservative parents who don't want this could actually run for the school board at, and actually um, vote this out and veto this from coming into their schools? Um, I don't <clears throat> think so. Don't you don't think, think so? I don't think so. Ah, <laughs> uh, well, that's what they like to say. You know what's ironic about that? Just recently, this uh, high-end clothing concern, what's it called? I forget. I Balenciaga or yeah, something like Balenciaga. that. Um, <clears throat> ran advertisements, right? Mm. In which they showed children with teddy bears in sexual bondage outfits. Yeah. And then you, you follow through on this and you look at one of their chief designers as a woman who has all of these horrible, um, perverse pictures on her sites and so on, and she's really into this uh, perversion. Yeah. And it's, it's almost uh, like, like, it looks like Satanism, really. And she's one of their chief designers. I forget what's her name, uh, Lola, uh, I'll, I'll think of the name. Anyway, it's, it's pretty foul. Yeah. I understand she's kind of scrubbed all this off since then. Yeah because it is so foul, and it's raising alarms in people. I mean, even people who are involved with Balenciaga, <clears throat> the name brand, who are themselves not living exactly moral lives, I mean, celebrities who are into all kinds of perverse things, are shaken by what they've seen here and express that. that they, they were shocked to see what they saw <clears throat> behind this uh, Balenciaga organization. But uh, this advertisement, that they were running, the one in particular with the, the teddy bear in this bondage outfit in the arms of this little girl. <clears throat> this uh, photograph showed uh, papers strewn on a table and somebody you know, zoomed in and, and saw a Supreme Court decision in which it, it basically um, freed up this kind of thing mm -hmm. and freed up this kind of uh, even bondage and uh, perversion involving children. Yeah. And uh, I mean, here you're you're saying here now just this outfit, uh, the after-school Satan Club, again is basing itself on some Supreme Court decision that has opened the door for them, right? Yeah. And a door that nobody can close without being accused of denying their civil rights, right? Yeah. <clears throat> so how have we got? How have we gotten here? How did we get here? How can this be so? What, what possible way is there under the circumstances to even deal with this and against it now if we have formally uh, opened the door to this kind of thing for the children? Um, why would anyone, for example, under these circumstances dare to open a, you know, some Bible study club, hurting like that in a, in, a, in, a, in a school? Why would anybody actually send their children to a government school? If they're going to be prey to this, because the rules, the the rules of the federal government uh, mandate this that they have access mm -hmm. to the children. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that's the key: is don't send your children to a government school. Um, um, to start be a with, a good place to start. Yeah, uh, yeah. don't don't support the government schools. <clears throat> be a great place to start. But well, Tom, I'll tell you. Uh, I think Cardinal Edward Manning has an answer as to how this happened. Because he has a good answer to explain to us how we got here. And uh, if you don't mind, I'd like to read his statement. It, it comes from a lecture that he gave. Uh, Henry Edward Cardinal Manning, an English cardinal, 
who lived from 1808 to 1892, okay? And uh, he wrote, and he gave a lecture called The Passion of the Church, right? I actually have uh, included excerpts of this uh, under the title The Passion and, quote, and I think it does shed light on what's happening now and where we're going and provides answers we actually need now. So with your leave, I'll go ahead and yes, read that. Okay. Yeah. Cardinal Manning uh, said in the late 1800s, now the church has had to undergo already two persecutions, one from the hand of the Jews and one also from the hand of the pagans. So the writers of the early ages, the fathers, both of the East and of the West, foretold that in the last age of the world, the church will have to undergo a third persecution, more bitter, more bloody, more searching, and more fiery than any it has undergone as yet. And that from the hands of an infidel world revolted from the incarnate word. Uh, if, if I may also comment on this, that he says the worst persecution lies ahead and it's going to come from a world <clears throat> that has rejected the Son of God. Okay? <clears throat> and I think it's important for us to, to put into perspective that because the paganism of old <clears throat> was basically one enormous fertility cult. But at least it believed in fertility, at least it believed in giving life. The paganism of today, the paganism that lies ahead, <clears throat> is one enormous anti-fertility cult, which has rejected even the idea of giving human life. And it is, it is, it is um, um, <clears throat> orders of magnitude more perverse than the paganism of old. You can have a paganism of old that uh, had some kind of natural virtues to it, the paganism of the present and the future is going to reject not only supernatural virtues of faith, hope, and charity, it's going to reject the natural virtues. Uh, it is going to be so completely given over to perversion <coughs> that, uh, well, we've seen, we've seen the beginnings of it already. So when he starts out by saying the worst persecution is ahead because it will come from a, 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 an infidel world that has rejected Christ, that, that puts it on a different level from the pagan world that rejected Christ. <clears throat> well, many of the pagans actually accepted Christ and converted. This is going to be the opposite. This is going to be <clears throat> the children of those who converted from paganism to Christianity now <clears throat> abandoning Christianity and apostatizing back to, yeah. back to paganism, but a different paganism, <clears throat> a, a much worse paganism. I continue with the words of Cardinal Manning. As the wicked did not prevail against him, our Lord Jesus Christ, even when they bound him with cords, dragged him to the judgment, blindfolded his eyes, mocked him as a false king, smote him on the head as a false prophet, led him away, crucified him, and in the mastery of their power seemed to have absolute dominion over him, so that he lay ground down and almost annihilated under their feet. And, as at the very time when he was dead and down, <clears throat> buried out of their sight, he was conqueror over all, and rose again the third day, 
and ascended into heaven, and was crowned, glorified, and invested with his royalty, and reigned supreme King of kings and Lord of lords, even so shall it be with his church. Though for a time persecuted, and to the eyes of man overthrown and trampled on, dethroned, despoiled, mocked, and crushed, yet in that high time of triumph the gates of hell shall not prevail. There is in store for the church of God a resurrection and an ascension, a royalty and a dominion, a recompense of glory for all it has endured. Like Jesus, it needs must suffer on the way to its crown. Yet crowned it shall be with him eternally. Let no one then be scandalized if the prophecies speak of sufferings to come. We are fond of imagining triumphs and glories for the church on earth. That the gospel is to be preached to all nations, and the world to be converted, and all enemies subdued, and I know not what, until some ears are impatient of hearing that there is in store for the church a time of terrible trial. And so we do as the Jews of old, who looked for a conqueror, a king, and for prosperity. And when their Messiah comes in humility and in passion, they did not know him. So I am afraid many among us intoxicate their minds with the visions of success and victory and cannot endure the thought that there is a time of persecution yet to come for the church of God. It's an important lesson for us today. Yeah. Were saying, those who are saying, oh, you talk about the Novus Ordo, the modernists, you talk about all these terrible things going on. It can't be. It just can't be. You talk about a great apostasy. It can't be. Well, I think Cardinal Manning actually knew some of those people well over 100 years ago okay. <clears throat> who ruled that out and said, no, no, it can't be. And he's saying here that they are intoxicated by visions of success, worldly success, but that is not what God has in store for us here. And he continues, the first sign, and this I think is very telling, the first sign or mark of this coming persecution is an indifference to truth. Now that's a very short, brief, bold, blunt statement. The first sign or mark of this coming persecution is an indifference to truth. Just as there is dead calm before a whirlwind, and as the waters over a great fall run like glass, so before an outbreak there is a time of tranquility. The first sign of indifference. The first sign is indifference. The sign that portends more surely than any other the outbreak of a future persecution is a sort of scornful indifference to truth or falsehood. Ancient Rome, in its might and power, adopted every false religion from all its conquered nations and gave to each of them a temple within its walls. It was sovereignly and contemptuously indifferent to all the superstitions of the earth. It encouraged them, for each nation had its own proper superstition, and that proper superstition was a mode of tranquilizing, of governing, and of maintaining in subjection the people who were indulged by building a temple within its gates. 
In like manner, we see the nations of the Christian world at this moment gradually adopting every form of religious contradiction. That is, giving it full scope and, as it is called, perfect toleration, not recognizing any distinctions of truth or falsehood between one religion or another, but leaving all forms of religion to work their own way. Sound familiar? <clears throat> Religious indifferentism. Mitchell Pius the Ninth condemned and <clears throat> even basically called a heresy. Right? And this has become the religion of the day. <clears throat> religion indifferentism. And a kind of a pernicious, uh, even, uh, you know, fury against there being such a thing as truth. And a real distinction between what is true and what is false. As though we have to even make that distinction anymore. Nobody wants to hear about that anymore. You know? Francis himself, right? God wills all religions, right? Bring a Pachamama into the meeting of the bishops. Bringing it into St. Peter's Basilica and worship it there. <clears throat> Why not? Francis embodies exactly what he says is the first step in, toward persecution of the faith. Francis is the embodiment of this, of this apostasy, really. The, the beginning of this apostasy. He continues there, though. There grows up an intense hatred of what is called dogmatism. Mm -hmm. Sound familiar? Yeah. How Francis condemns dogmatism. But this is what he says is the result of an indifference to truth and an acceptance of all error on the same basis <clears throat> as truth. It leads to an intense hatred of dogma. Reference Francis. He's the poster child of anti-dogmatism and anti-clericalism, too. They go together, anti-dogma and anti-clergy, right? That is, of any positive truth, anything definite, anything final, anything which has precise limits, any form of belief which is expressed in particular definitions, all this is utterly distasteful to men who, on principle, encourage all forms of religious opinion. The next step is, then, the persecution of the truth. In ancient Rome, there were all manner of sacred confraternities and orders and societies. And I know not what. But there was one society which was not permitted to exist, and that was the Church of the Living God. In the midst of this universal toleration, there was one exception made with the most peremptory exactness to exclude the truth and the church of God from the world. Now this is what must again inevitably come to pass, because the church of God is inflexible in the mission committed to it. The Catholic Church is bound by the divine law to suffer martyrdom rather than compromise a doctrine or obey the law of the civil governor, which violates the conscience. And more than this, it is not only bound to offer a passive disobedience, which may be done in a corner and therefore not detected, and because not detected, not punished. But the Catholic Church cannot be silent. It cannot hold its peace. It cannot cease to preach the doctrines of revelation, not only of the Trinity and of the Incarnation, but likewise of the seven sacraments and of the infallibility of the Church of God, and of the necessity of unity, and of the sovereignty, both spiritual and temporal, 
of the Holy See. And because it will not be silent and cannot compromise and will not obey in matters that are of its own divine prerogative, therefore it, that is the church, must stand alone or stands alone in the world. Okay. Now this is very interesting from Cardinal Manning's point of view, but I think in the late 1890s, or the late 1800s, I should say, because he talks about the infallibility because the authority uh, of the Holy See, the sovereignty of the Holy See. And why the reason this is so interesting is because Francis is even now dismantling the Holy See. He's dismantling the papacy. He's actually just taking it apart and casting it away. Um, he, he is destroying the papacy. And people are actually going along with it because they say, well, he's the Pope, he can do that. Because he is the Pope, he has authority to destroy the very office he holds and to destroy the very concept of the papacy that the Church teaches, that we believe in. Because we can't believe in that anymore, because if Francis is the Pope, <clears throat> we can't believe in the, that the papacy is what we believed it was before. We have to change our beliefs in what the papacy is <clears throat> in order for pan to, to allow room for Francis, a man like Francis, to be the Pope, to say what he says, and does what he, do what he does. And, uh, of course, those who stand by the papacy at this point, who say, no, you know, something very wrong here. There's <clears throat> something wrong with this man who is destroying the very concept of the papacy, and in the name of the papacy, destroying it, <clears throat> and leading you all on this primrose path with him. We think the papacy is exactly what the church has always taught it to be. And because we uphold the papacy as the divinely established office, divinely established by Jesus Christ himself, <clears throat> to be the, the trumpet of truth to the nations, right? Because we uphold that and will not abandon that faith. You claim that we are enemies of Francis, that we are uh, schismatic. You claim that we are anti-Catholic. Uh, you claim that we're breaking the, the unity of the church because we stand by the papacy and will not allow it to be destroyed. Um, what what nonsense is this? Um, how can you how can you choose to, in the name of the papacy, uh, empower a man to destroy it? And we we cannot stand silently by. We're the ones who uphold the teachings of the popes throughout the centuries. To this day, the, we, we do that because we realize this is what the Catholic Church must do. And for that very reason, we cannot stand with a Francis who says God wills all these religions, teaching all these things. Um, and what Cardinal Manning is describing here is tradi the traditional Catholic uh, believers, right? The traditional Catholic faith right now. That's what he's describing. He's, he's describing the Novus Ordo as among those who are actually undermining the church and leading to the great persecution. The doctrines of the Novus Ordo are what he says are going to lead us to the great persecution. Because true Catholics cannot be silent and cannot be tolerant of error. They have to stand with Christ, who is the Son of God, and therefore the one true Son of the one true God, founder of the one true Church, and the one who revealed to us the one true faith, the practice of that faith, the one true religion. That's where we have to stand. We cannot compromise that. <clears throat> but
But anyway, he, he ends with this paragraph, at least this, this section that I've excerpted from his work here, ends by saying this, The Holy Fathers, who have written upon the subject of Antichrist and of the prophecies of Daniel, without a single exception, as far as I know, all of them unanimously say that in the latter end of the world, during the reign of Antichrist, the holy sacrifice of the altar will cease. In the work on the end of the world ascribed to St. Hippolytus, after a long description of the afflictions of the last days, we read as follows, and he quotes from St. Hippolytus here. The churches shall lament with a great lamentation, for there shall be offered no more oblation, nor incense, nor worship acceptable to God. The sacred buildings of the churches shall be as hovels, and the precious body and blood of Christ shall not be manifest in those days. I, the word manifest is interesting, meaning open, openly celebrated. The implication is that it will still be there, but it will be, in a sense, underground or hidden. But he says, the body and blood of Christ shall not be manifest in those days. The liturgy, liturgy shall be extinct, he says. The chanting of psalms shall cease. The reading of Holy Scripture shall be heard no more. But there shall be upon men darkness and mourning upon mourning and woe upon woe. That's the end of the quote. And then Cardinal Manning continues, Then the church shall be scattered, driven into the wilderness, and shall be for a time as it was in the beginning, invisible, hidden in the catacombs, in dens, in mountains, in lurking places. For a time it shall be swept, as it were, from the face of the earth. Such is the universal testimony of the fathers of the early centuries. That voice is very powerful, coming to us as it does in the late 1800s, from a man who had been made a bishop and a cardinal here in England. England, the, the patrimony right, of the church, um, the, uh, the English church, which had, had then had persecuted the, the Catholic church and tried to drive it out. This man knew what he was talking about. Uh, coming to England at a time when the church itself was being persecuted in the most Catholic England, right? Um, so um, it's important for us to, to take seriously what uh, a man like Cardinal Manning says. And when he says that is unanimous testimony of the fathers of the church, we need to accept that. You know, the church says that the, um, the moral unanimity of the fathers of the church is infallible testimony. So we would have to accept that as an infallible statement. Take it together with St. Paul, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, where he talks about a great apostasy. <clears throat> but notice he starts by saying that the persecution begins with an indifference toward the truth. You go to the Bible, open the uh, sacred scriptures to 2 Thessalonians, if you can't find it, that shows you don't read the Bible enough. You need to be able to find that. The second epistle of St. Paul to the Thessalonians, go to chapter 2. Go to the end of chapter 2. It's a short chapter. That's where St. Paul talks about the great apostasy, the coming of the Antichrist, when the restrainer is removed, taken out of the way. And he talks about those who will not be deceived by the Antichrist, 
are those who will have received a love for the truth. A love for the truth. It hearkens, I mean, the voice of Cardinal Manning in the late 1800s in this lecture hearkens back to those words of St. Paul, that it is a love for the truth that will distinguish those who fall victim to the Antichrist lies and those who are, as it were, immune to them. Um, in fact, St. Paul even says there that those who will succumb to the, the lies of the Antichrist are those who do not love the truth. And therefore, God has abandoned them to the operation of error. That's how it's translated. To the working of error. As though God has withdrawn his grace from them because they rejected that grace. They don't love the truth. But those who have accepted the grace to love the truth and will be faithful to it regardless, will not be uh, impressed by the lies, will not be deceived by the lies, even of the greatest liar of all time, the Antichrist, right? the greatest showman of all time, because he will come working signs and wonders so as to deceive, if possible, even the elect. St. Paul says that, Second Thessalonians chapter 2. He says all of that there. The greatest showman on earth will not deceive them, we can't let these showmen, Lanton LeVay or Everett or, or uh, what's his name, Greaves, these showmen deceive us today either with their uh, lying displays. We can't let them deceive us and deter us from the truth. And yes, we have to stand up and we have to proclaim the truth. We have to proclaim the kingship of Christ. You know, uh, the words of Cardinal Manning here uh, should be, words of great assurance to us that uh, these things that we see happening are, are not because somehow the world has gotten out of the control of God. <clears throat> They're not because God has somehow lost control. Quite the contrary. He's still Christ the King. He has the rightful dominion over every human being, man, woman, and child who would ever live or ever could live. And ultimately, as he's judging every soul that comes to him, uh, and when it leaves this world, it will, he will judge all of mankind and reveal the justice and mercy of his judgment, every judgment that he's made over every single soul at the general judgment. And his will will prevail, and he will pronounce sentence on every single soul. We, that is a fact. It's going to happen. Our faith tells us that, and we have absolute confidence in the truthfulness of our faith because it comes from him. Our confidence is in him, not in ourselves. And so we have no choice but to proclaim the truth of that uh, in season and out of season. That's what the Catholic Church does. That's what it always has done. That's what it must do in our own day, too. That's why Cardinal Manning says we can't just kind of slink off into a corner and be silent and hope to, to duck, you know, to duck what's coming. He said, I mean, he indicates quite the contrary. This is the time to get out of the streets and proclaim the faith. To be very bold about it. Proclaim the kingship of Christ. Um, the gospel of the last Sunday after Pentecost, yes, that tends to be somewhat grim. The gospel of the first Sunday of Advent, which we've just celebrated here, uh, highlights the coming of Christ and his ultimate triumph. What does our Lord say there? When you see these things come to pass, when you begin to see these things come to pass, look up. Lift up your heads. Everybody else is going to be looking to the earth, you know, because that's all they care about, right? 
You think of the ostrich with its head in the ground, you know, uh, uh, trying to avoid what scares us. And we're, here we're told, don't be like the ostrich, right? Don't look to the world here as though that's what you live for. Lift up your heads. And I, I said in the, in the sermon on Sunday, yeah, I mean, I realize that we tend to be preoccupied with the things of the earth, and we will need our Lord to reach down and lift up our heads. To, he will have to raise our heads, put his hand under our chin, and raise our heads to him in, uh, in heaven by prayer. But that's what he tells us we need to do at this time, uh, to actually anticipate that he, the love of our lives, the, the greatest love of our existence here on earth, and ultimately, the one who we love with all our heart and all our mind, all our soul, all our strength, that his triumph is coming. And uh, we anticipate that triumph with Christ, even as we commiserate with what's happening in the world here. We see it as confirmation of our faith, not a challenge, but as a confirmation of all that we believe. And if there's anything that should cause us great joy, it is the thought of the ultimate triumph of our Lord Jesus Christ. That should give us the greatest comfort that we can have here on earth. So we must convey that to our children here now. That confidence, that that bold confidence in our faith, that bold confidence in our Lord as Christ the King. We have to stand for that. Huh? Um, we have the, the copies of this. I'd be glad to make it available. Perhaps we could even... I don't know, can we even post it on the yes, site yeah. <clears throat> for people to see? Right. Look it over, see what Cardinal Manning had to say. Yeah. Uh, do some research, go back to the uh, writings of the Fathers of the Church on the very subject. Um, rather than find them doubtful, you'll find them compelling. Rather than find them discouraging, you'll find them very much encouraging, that they knew exactly what was coming. No wonder St. Louis de Montfort said, the greatest saints are yet to come, right? He said that, right? right. And they will be uh, consecrated to Our Lady and Our Lady's Immaculate Heart. So let's do it. Let's do what Our Lady said needs to be done. Yeah. Anyway, okay, you, you gave me that time, and I appreciate that very much. <laughs> Thank you, Father. Let me ask you this. Do you find this encouraging? Yes, Father, yes. Find it frightening? Um, uh, well, in one sense, yes, but uh, I think it, it can be frightening in the sense that, um, I think frightening and encouraging at the same time, if that makes any sense in that we uh, it seems one thing that sticks out in, in all of this and tying everything together with the Satanism that we're talking about is that we're, we, aren't, uh, we aren't fighting any natural powers here. This is a, um, if you call it a preternatural force, um, and we're actually fighting Satan. Yes, he and, does and exist. Right? He does very much <laughs> exist, but... That's what we're fighting. So not, it's like we're not fighting, you know, our fellow fellow man, but we're actually fighting uh, the powers and principalities and dev devils mm -hmm. and demons um, here. So that, that can be a bit terrifying, but um, at the same time, I think it can be encouraging because um, that tells us that we don't have to employ human means for this. We just, we need grace. We need supernatural help um, for this. Well, we must employ whatever human means we have, but we realize they will not be adequate. Yeah. And they don't have to be, yeah. because the, the adequacy comes from our Lord, yeah. ultimately. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, St. Paul says in Second Thessalonians that love of truth is the key here. Yeah. <clears throat> You're raising little children now, right? And you want them to grow up loving the truth. Right? Yeah. And uh, 
you know, I, I guess it would be unfair to me to ask you, well, how do you tend to do that? <laughs> and that's kind of putting you on the spot as a dad. I guess giving them the example of love of the truth and yeah. speaking to them and encouraging them in the truth and try to give them a love for the truth by word and example, right? Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, yes, rather, but I think uh, one big practical thing that helps maybe is uh, understanding that the truth is actually our Lord Jesus Christ, and that's something that I think isn't isn't really um, clarified <laughs> enough uh, for, for some people, but by actually teaching them just to love our Lord, you are, in fact, <laughs> simultaneously teaching them to love the truth because our Lord is the way, the truth, and the life. So I think just by simply teaching them to have a love for our Lord, they will, at the same time, develop a love for the truth. <clears throat> they would have to. You put it in those terms, you know. Yeah. Let me ask you this too, since I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> kind of cross-examining you here. Um, you know, we talk about the kingship of Christ. Mm. Now, we adults, we think of that as metaphorical. And in his encyclical on the kingship of Christ, Pope Pius XI said it is a metaphor, which he says doesn't take away from the idea of kingship of Christ. It actually adds to it because he says it's metaphorical because the kings of the earth come and go and their kingship is rooted in the earth. But our Lord's kingship is a surpassing kingship that goes beyond any kingship we know here on earth. But we as adults, I mean, we, we don't live in the age really so much of kings. We live in the age of presidents and prime ministers. So it might be a little hard for us to grasp that. But children live in the world of kings and princesses. and This is very real to them, right? So do you think presenting that ideal of the kingship of Christ to the children actually makes a special impression on them at their age because they can kind of grasp the notion, uh, maybe even even a little better than, than we adults who've grown up within a very artificial world mm. in which we've rejected the idea of kingship largely. And all that it really stands for, kings are just ceremonial uh, to us really basically. Um, pageantry and all the rest, but to have real authority of kingship. For adults, they've kind of left that world behind, so to say. Children haven't necessarily. Do you think that's an opportunity to inculcate that idea in their minds of the kingship of Christ? I think so, Father. I mean, our Lord said that we need to be like little children, right? Just yeah, well, there you go. Yeah. Simple ideas. I wonder how many of our Catholic parents are doing that, though, actually speaking to their children of the kingship of our Lord and inculcating that that concept in their minds from a very early age. You know, I'd recommend it though, right? If they do that. So, uh, well, you know, okay. Well, I thought I would ask you as a father, you know, what uh, practical advice. Uh, at times people have asked that in the past, and you've always come out with some very, some very good practical advice. So, uh, so I thought I would, uh, you know, finally relinquish the microphone to you <laughs> for a minute. You, but Father. perhaps that's something we should talk about in the future, too. Sure. Like How parents can convey that notion to their children. They can grow up with the idea that they are citizens, uh, citizens of that kingdom, the city of God. Yeah. And going forward to uh, boldly proclaim their faith. Um, <clears throat> I mean, the children, uh, the little children, going forward, you you really want them to... Go into life with the sense of being very um, 
what should I say? I would say audacious. Boldness sometimes carries the sense of being audacious. You don't want your children to be audacious, but you do want them to be very forthright in presenting their faith to others, right? And you would encourage them to do that it's with their uh, fellow traditional Catholics, with Novus Ordo Catholics who are, may still have the faith, but they don't know what to do about it. Really. And even non-Catholics. Um, how would you encourage your children as the years go by to not be passive, um, not be silent about their faith, but actually to be very proactive about it and have a kind of an apostolic approach to their, in their friendships and so on. I think if you just teach them um, to put their faith first and foremost in everything that they do, I think that that kind of comes naturally. They just think in those terms of that my faith is the most important thing. And so they don't, that they don't even have to, um, you know, necessarily actively think that out, that I'm going to be apostolic. I think it just come, comes out naturally by the fact that um, in everything that they do, they know that their faith is you know, the most important thing that's first and foremost on their mind always. And so I think it just kind of is a natural um, expression. That, that you know, I, I find that very interesting myself, what you just said, because what comes to mind is children sometimes can be ashamed of their faith, but that's not natural to them. No. What is natural to them is just to speak of it yes. very openly. And like, of course, you know, this yes. is how it is. But we do we teach them to be ashamed of their faith? Do, I mean, do sometimes parents teach them, oh, you know, don't, don't do that. You know, that makes others uncomfortable. I mean, why do children, I mean, as a parent, why would you see children being almost afraid to speak of their faith and ashamed of it? You say it's not their natural inclination, right? I don't think so, Father, but um, I can only speak speak for my children. I've definitely never, never seen that. I, I, um, just a funny... Uh, quick anecdote: Our um, uh, we have neighbors who uh, I I don't believe are, are very religious at all, and uh, are, they've had some very brief interactions with my children. And um, my oldest daughter discovered that uh, one day that the the neighbor I think was around her same age didn't know the Hail Mary. My daughter was was shocked at this fact that someone her age didn't know the Hail Mary, and so she very quickly set about uh, scheduling lessons to teach her teach the Hail, Hail Mary. Mary. Well, good. <laughs> there you are. And uh, I, I think she was, uh, she was just shocked. And, and of course, age. it was just, of course, it was yeah. just natural to her. Of course, yeah. we have to learn the Hail Mary, and I'd be glad to teach her. Yeah. Would it all children have that, and would it no adult would ever, would ever turn them away from that? Yeah. You know, that's how we all should be, right? Yeah. Absolutely. Well, uh, God bless her for that. Right? <laughs> that's that's quite something. I'm so glad to hear that. And did it work? Did she learn that way? I think at least some of it, yeah. But... <laughs> okay, well, yeah. that's a good start. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> well, Tom, thanks. I'm sorry to put you on the spot there. But, no, that's okay. Uh, by the way, if I may express my gratitude to our benefactors, our Marthas and Marys here. <laughs> yes. uh, and uh, say, welcome back. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. We missed you greatly. Um, and to thank all of our benefactors here who support the program. God bless you all. We have uh, you had a blessed Thanksgiving and are on your way to have a blessed Advent in preparation for the celebration of uh, the first coming of our Lord, in anticipation of his second coming. This is how the church looks during this Advent time now. It looks back to the time of our Lord's coming as the baby in the manger, which is 
very warm and very inviting, very comforting to us, but also to look forward with anticipation to his ultimate triumph in his, in his kingdom, and um, <clears throat> of which you and I very much want to be included, in which we, we intend to be included, we pray to be included. Um, so just be careful of one thing, though. Don't get drawn into the world's Christmas, the, the Christmas of the world. I mean, the world is trying to destroy the idea of Christmas in, in multiple ways. One of them is the commercial Christmas by getting everybody thinking Christmas now. And, uh, but as a commercial enterprise, as a commercial concern, and just anything to distract you from the very point of Christmas, and that is we are looking forward to the birth of the Savior and reliving that, that time of the birth of the Savior in the world and experiencing the joy, revisiting that joy of the Savior's birth, the joy that was in the angels, the joy that was in the shepherds, the joy that was in the kings. We want to make our joy now. And uh, the world wants to co-op all of that, turn it back into a pagan holiday with the Saturnalia uh, of a, a pagan so-called Christmas time without Christ. We have need to keep Advent as a time of preparation for that celebration, and we need to make that preparation to, to hold fast to a real Advent season. So, um, you know, perhaps in a future program, uh, in the weeks ahead, we can talk about that, what that means. Sure. But I, I do ask you, don't celebrate Christmas until Christmas, all right? Because when I, when I, I, re, I sometimes refer to this time as the anti-Christmas, because those who celebrate in a worldly fashion are celebrating Christmas now in all kinds of worldly ways that have nothing to do with our Lord Jesus Christ. And then on the actual date of Christmas, December 6th, they commit gluttony, and then they take all the decorations down, like, well, he's born, it's over with, forget about it, and they go on to the next big thing. As though that the actual birth of Christ terminates the celebration and the party's over. Whereas for the for Catholics, traditionally, the party begins, we start celebrating on the day that Christ is born. That's the beginning of the Christmas season, and it lasts for 40 full days of celebration. So keep that tree, okay? Keep those lights on for 40 days until February 2nd. That's a real Catholic, true Christian Christmas, not this fake commercial, worldly Christmas they're trying to get you to celebrate now in anything but a Christian way. So hold that line. Insist. Insist on it with everybody. Okay, everybody, you know what true Christmas is. Hold off your Christmas parties until after Christ is born that we have something to celebrate. Okay? And, uh, well, you get the point. Yeah. <laughs> I think we get the point. <laughs> I hope we get the point. So God bless you all. Yeah, thank you for everything, Father. God bless you. Thank you. Thanks to all of our viewers as well for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady at Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary and to pray and do penance. Thank you and God bless you.